Welcome to Doctrine and Devotion, a podcast that explores Christian faith and practice from a Reformed Baptist perspective. My name is Joe Thorne. I'm the lead pastor of Redeemer Fellowship in St. Charles, Illinois. And today we have an exclusive, uh, you know, we're a big podcast, you know, maybe the best. Some people say it's the best, it's the most fun. Uh, maybe it's not, but uh, we do have a, a, a pretty a pretty good conversation to have today with the uh, the new president of the Southern Baptist Convention. That's uh, Bart Barber. And if you don't know much about Bart Barber, most of our, our, our listeners do, but if you don't, um, he's been the pastor of First Baptist Church of Farmersville since 1999. Is that right, Bart? That's right. And you are the newly elected president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Whew. Uh let me pinch myself. Uh, is it real? Yes, actually, that's right too. You're not nightmaring uh, or dreaming. Uh, yeah, well, exactly right. It's all it's all real life, I think. Well, Dr. Barber has a BA um, from Baylor University and uh, MDiv from Southwestern Theological Seminary and a PhD in Church History, also from Southwestern. So, very nice, good stuff. Um, listen, you know, I was at the Southern Baptist Convention uh, this year. And uh, had a had a good time. Some some, some tension. S- sorry, your guy didn't win. Oh, <laughs> I voted for you. I totally did vote for you. <laughs> you know, and I I, I was uh, you know they, they they talked about it again this year about the gavels. There's a lot of gavels. You know, there's uh, there's the broadest gavel, the Judson gavel, the Charleston gavel, the Bunyan gavel. And I was surprised actually that there isn't more security around those around those gavels because it turns out that like some some guy like me can just walk up. And like take a look at one, and then yeah, take home a souvenir. It's kind of nice. So uh, I'm, I may sell this thing on eBay. I'm not sure. I'm uh, for, for the record. This is uh, this is the gavel I'm holding. This is the gavel for uh, First Baptist Church of St. Charles, uh, which is the church that planted us. And they no longer exist, but it was planted in the 50s. And this was their gavel for all of their members' meetings. So That's so cool. I've kept it. It's uh, it's well worn. They definitely use this thing, but. Uh, did you, did you think it was real? Did you think I got one? No, because oh. Jonathan Howe <laughs> <laughs> secures those things pretty tightly. So well, I, I, I was holding one for, you know, a minute and a half uh, at the very end. And, um, and and they came and found me pretty quickly. Yeah, uh, they want to get a hold on to it. Those are, uh, those are like our relics. Those are, you know, yeah. those are valuable. Yeah. I, I don't know how many years I lost off of purgatory uh, from holding <laughs> it for a few minutes. All right. So one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, uh, why in the world would you want to be the president of the Southern Baptist Convention? Um, boy, that's a great question. Uh, I don't know that I did. I know for a long time I did not and, uh, and told people uh, no and had a lot of good reasons for saying no to that. Um, I've always cared about this family of faith. Gosh, I'm talking slower than I meant to. I I came into this intending to speak very, very quickly for all the people who listen at one and a half speed, uh, just to to mess them up. How dare uh, they? But I'm I'm too deep in the South, Joe. I can't... uh, It's all right. You be you. I can't speak that quickly. Okay. So... Uh, anyway, I have, uh, you know, I, I was born uh, to parents who were members of Southern Baptist Church. Uh, this convention and the churches in it have done a lot for me down through the years. I've always cared about the health of our convention. Uh, it was just my belief uh, for quite some time that that our that our convention had become dysfunctional in some ways, 
that would mean that the best position from which to help the convention was not holding any position. Mm. Just be a pastor. Um, so nobody second guesses what you're doing by thinking that you're trying to do something political. Um, and, uh, and from that position, call people to, to reason and civility and grace and all of those things. Uh, but, um, you know, a, a lot of friends reached out to me um, earlier this spring and said, this is something you really need to do. And I just, in prayer, God, um, God moved upon me uh, and upon some people close to me that, uh, that I was called to do this. And, uh, and I, so I went into it thinking, God's called me to put my name into the hat. Uh, I'm prepared to, to lose and go about doing what I've already been doing. And uh, God had different plans in mind. Mm-hmm. So here we are. Um, I, I will say this, um, uh, since b- being elected, um, I, I can tell you now why I'm glad I did. Mm-hmm. Um, because the, the number of people who really do want good things for the SBC, who uh, care about this family of churches, they've been blessed by it just like I have. And, um, you know, who, who have reached out to me and said, uh, please lead us in the direction you've said that you're going to lead us. Um, it's that network of people who are praying for me, encouraging me, saying great things. Um, I think uh, that's, that's going to be a whole lot deeper and richer than I ever thought it was going to be. And I think it's going to be a joy uh, to, to give voice to folks like that in our convention. That's great. And w- one of the things that I've always appreciated about you online, and this is the first time we've actually spoke. Uh, well, we spoke on the phone just before this, but, um, yeah. but as of this interview, right before this, it was just social media and you know, you're, yeah. you're very active on social media, especially for an old head. Um, actually, I don't think you're that much older than me, but, uh, but you're very active on social media and, you, you know, you're, you're not afraid to engage in tough topics, but you're always gracious. Uh, you're always kind. You're always clear. And uh, you're funny. Like you bust chops, which is something that Jimmy and I always appreciate. You are not afraid to throw down and make fun of your people, the people that you love. You don't make fun of people mm-hmm. that you disagree with. You make fun of your friends. Which I, is I make pe- fun of people I disagree with. I make fun of Matt Hensley all the time. Oh, yeah. Well, it's kind of uh, hard to, to agree with him. <laughs> Yeah. Now, now, um, so, but with, with your attitude and with your approach, and I think, you know, your character, your spirit, um, was it hard running for president or what was the hardest part of actually running? Was it easy? Was it difficult? Were you surprised about how things kind of unfolded before the actual vote? So I've always had people disagree with me. It wasn't until my name was in the hat for president of the SBC that, that people really started well, apart from a few people that, that people really started actively. What I've got to think is intentionally misrepresenting mm. my position on things. Uh, it was never, never worth it to do that before. You know, they could, I suppose just ignore me or, or make their best case. And I make my best case and just leave it at that walk away, you know, feeling they'd bested me in debate or whatever. But, um, but you know, I've never had anybody come back and say, Bart Barber hates democracy and is a totalitarian. That, that, that kind of thing was new. 
Uh, and, you know, the main thing that bothered me about that was not that I thought that a large number of people were going to come away honestly thinking that I was like, okay with homosexuality or honestly thinking that uh, I didn't care about honesty uh, because you know, I think really we're, we, we've just come into our adolescence with the internet enough that most people, when they see something that seems like a take that's way yonder too far, uh, you know, a lot of people see that and they're, they're wise to that. What bothered me is um, just to, um, uh, to consider the spiritual condition of somebody who would do that and to, and to mourn. Not, not, I'm not naive to think that there aren't a lot of people in the world who would fall prey to something like that, um, that, a, that a family of churches trying to reach the world with a gospel would be the occasion that would create in people mm. a context and a motivation to lie. Uh, just it's heartbreaking to me that that would be that way. Well, this sounds exactly like something a liberal who denies the sufficiency of scripture would say. Okay. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's just, it, there, there, it, it's been, there's been some ugliness. Um, and, and that is something that I actually want us to talk about here um, in a minute. But so and you, I want to, yeah. I want to be clear, not Tom, Tom Askell never misrepresented me in ways. Right. Like that. And you know, Tom, uh, you and Tom know each other well. Yeah, I, I've known Tom for a long time. Uh, yeah, for a long time, and he he never did that. To me. Yeah, but I there, never saw Tom go after you. Right, but there were people. Oh yeah, no, 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 I know. So you know, we we get to the SBC, and um, was there anything there that? Because I want to talk about what encouraged you uh, and what you thought was good about it. But before we do that, was there anything there that you were discouraged by? Was were there any frustration points? Um, besides people using the point of order butter button when they don't know what's going on. Uh, I mean, I used to moderate our local association, so I know Robert's rules. Uh, but I felt like that's that we need to fi- fix that thing. So besides that, uh, were, were you, was it, were there moments of disappointment or was it just overall good? Like what's your, what's your take? Uh, so I'll, I'll tell you any annual meeting that I go to, there's things I'm disappointed in, things I'm excited about. You put, that many people, 10,000 people together in a room right. with an open microphone for anybody. Point and, of order. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I think here's the thing that disappointed me the most. And I, I'm, um, you know, I really believe in the integrity of the process and I, and I, I don't want to disparage anybody who gets up and makes anything that's a heartfelt plea, even right. if I disagree with that. Uh, but when there was an attempt to amend a resolution on rural churches and rural pastors to insert into that um, the the you know some points about the plagiarism controversy that happened over the course of the past year. Not that I wouldn't want somebody to have their say about that question, but to take away from yeah. rural churches and rural pastors who are on the line in hard, lonely, isolating ministry. And to try to take that away and and make it a resolution about your pet thing. Right. Uh, stick it in something else. Right. Uh, you know, I just, I was, I was so disheartened by that, that that would, that that would even happen. Uh, that, that I put on my parliamentary procedure hat 
and walked up to a microphone to think about what legitimate reason there would be to to keep that from going forward anymore. Well, I'm glad um, it got shut down because it was it had nothing to do with the resolution. It didn't, and that was my point of objection was to say this is not germane at mm-hmm. all uh, to the to the point of this resolution, and I and I stand by that. I think it was pretty transparent to everybody who was there right. that um, that that the that the maker of that amendment was not really trying to say anything about rural ministry and rural churches, and so um, you know. Everybody, like I said in the lead up to that, everybody's lost a vote at some time oh, or yeah. another. Everybody's tried to do something. And been, well, anybody who's done much walking up to a microphone has been ruled out of order on something or had something referred out that you didn't want to have referred out. And How many of just, your motions that you've created have been shot down? Almost all of them. <laughs> uh, almost all of them. The first time I went to a microphone to make a motion, I wanted a study on pro- professorial salaries. They ruled it out of order. I, I I think maybe I was the first person in modern history to appeal from the decision of the chair. Uh, and, of course, several people did that this year. Uh, so I feel like I'm kind of a trailblazer, you know, <laughs> uh, in that way. But, uh, uh, yeah, and and resolutions, I've had I've had one ever resolution go through. I've written resolutions on sexual abuse and ministry. I've written resolutions on... Uh, ecclesiological, theological ideas in the past. The only one I've ever had go through, I was in a partnership with Tom Askell and Malcolm Yarnell on. That was a resolution on re- regenerate church membership. Well, you hardcore... Uh, every, everything else has been blown down. You hardcore five-point thoroughgoing Calvinists, you know, you all flock together. Uh, it's actually, it, this is, and for listeners don't know, Bart is not a Reformed Baptist. He's Baptist, but he's not a Reformed Baptist. Um, right. I've never once got a whiff of antagoniz- antagonism from you towards the Calvinistic contingent uh, in the SBC. You've always been a cooperative Baptist, like we're supposed to be. I've always tried to be that. I was. I want you to note that I was the only candidate who cited the Second London Baptist Confession in my Baptist Press article. Uh, so I cited mm. 1689, and mm. I'm a Baptist faith and message guy uh, yeah. on on local church autonomy. Yeah. Uh, but uh, honestly, uh, uh, Joe, my my beginnings in blogging uh, in the SBC in 2006 2007 were were very contentious. Oh really? And I go, oh, and I go back and read some of that stuff, and I was uh, anything anybody does to me, I deserve it. I've done it to somebody else at some point along the way, and um, I was just really passionate about my ideas and passionately against some of other, other people's sure. ideas who were there. I, you know, I, I had a cage stage. It just wasn't as a Calvinist. It right. was at a. It, it was as a, a kind of just two ticks shy of a landmarker mm. uh, ecclesiological Baptist, you know? Right, right. And um, so um, what moved me off of that mark is that, um, is that people that I was allied with uh, at that time over some of these Baptist distinctive kind of questions, um, once that sort of settled down, started turning against, Calvinists who had been on our side because they were Calvinists, mm. and uh, a lot of the a lot of the critiques of Calvinism. I, there are reasons I'm not a Calvinist. Uh, here's what they're not: 
It's not because uh, I think that Calvinism kills evangelism and missions. I've tried to say to people that the first and the most faithful people to be missionaries and to be evangelists in Baptist history have been Calvinists. And uh, you just can't square it with a historical record to make those critiques. Uh, and, and the fact of the matter is, um, there's a, there's a strong biblical case. I think this is where, this is where this is going to degenerate into a Donnybrook between me and you. But I, I think there's a really strong biblical case that I see as someone who's not a Calvinist for every point of Calvinist, except Calvinism, except for limited atonement. And, um, and I, and I know, I know there's a case for limited atonement. I just don't think it's the strong biblical case that you have for say election. Um, and, um, and I just, um, I'm somebody who uh, is, is moved compellingly by that case, and those four points, uh, but then kept reading and ran into some other verses that gave me some pause over maybe the full extent of what uh, had been uh, inferred out of the others. And so, you know, I have, so I think a lot of the reasons that are put up against Calvinists are reasons that are shoddy thinking. Right. And I have a deep respect in Baptist history for the contributions of Reformed Baptists since, you know, the particular Baptists in uh, the very, you know, the earliest days in the 1600s. And, um, and so, um, so I've always thought that we ought to be cooperating with one another more. That's, uh, that's been the heartbeat of Southern Baptist Convention for a long time. And, um, and that was what de-radicalized me was mm. watching people go against Calvinists, actually. Hmm. And I like, and we'll talk about this as well, the big tent. I like the big tent. You know, I'm a Reformed Baptist. I'm the dumb guy that got 1689 tattooed on his hand. Um, I I like that stuff. Um, But I like, I love being in a big tent. I like learning from people that are outside of, you know, my particular, very particular uh, confessional identity to the broader Baptist confessional identity. I like learning and cooperating together. Um, And we can get so much done. I mean, it's incredible what we can get done. And we as a I'm very open on social media. Our churches, we're very transparent about everything. So um, if if you don't like, people have reasons they might not vibe with us, right? That we're reformed or whatever. Um, but we've got nothing but love from the North American Mission Board. We've got nothing but love from the Illinois Baptist State Association. Uh, we've always felt very supported and encouraged uh, for who we are and how we operate without any side eye Except from the local association, they they were on tilt. But everybody else, and we just we just we just jumped, we just got out of there. But everybody else has been great. Um, so, what about uh, when we're looking at this this convention? And I think we all know what some of the big ones were. But what was really encouraging for you um, at the SBC this year? Well, I was uh, besides I was very... the, we voted the right guy in. Besides that, <laughs> yeah, uh, I was delighted the way the presidential election turned out. Uh, uh, we'll put my wife on here and we'll let her tell you what she thought about the outcome of that. <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, I think, um, what we did with the sex abuse reform steps, uh, was, was very encouraging, not just what the outcome of the votes, uh, turned out to be, but the margins, uh, yeah. by which they won. So yeah. I think it was very important. Um, I was, I was pleased, uh, at the, I, I was deeply involved in the resolutions process. I was the chair of the resolutions committee. And I thought we put together some really good resolutions. I was thankful uh, for the content that came out of those. 
Uh, there were a few amendments made. They all helped the resolutions, I thought. Yeah, there, was, uh, the yeah, res- there were some the, good ones. The amendments that were made. And uh, so, uh, so I felt really good about that. Uh, the pastor's conference, I think Matt did a fabulous job yeah. putting together the pastor's conference. And uh, I missed way too much of that, but I'm going back and watching it on Acts 2 now. And, uh, and I'm encouraged by that, that that resolutions committee job is the kind of job where they, they lock you in a windowless room and say, we'll let you out if you give us enough words. And so, uh, so I missed way too much of the pastor's right. conference. Uh, but what I saw in person was very encouraging and, and I thought, I thought all that was great. Uh, and, uh, you know, also, uh, I'm, I'm glad that we left Anaheim with just as many entities as we arrived in Anaheim Mm -hmm. with, uh, that we didn't, you know, abolish anything. So there were a lot of things there that were encouraging, uh, along the way. I just, uh, I believe I'm kind of a mystic about this, Joe. I, I believe that where uh, you know where God's people gather and seek God's will for decision making, that the Holy Spirit shows up and moves through those folks. And I just believe that was evident uh, in the time that we spent in Anaheim. I was encouraged in so many ways. I love the messengers. I mean, there's there's, yeah. there's always groups that I'm like I get tired of. Like there's you know people get tired of me. People Jimmy the people can only take so much of Jimmy and I, and some people can't take any of Jimmy and I. So I get it. But like when I meet messengers, Tony Dopke and I were there and uh, he was at our church. Now he's pastoring the church just north of us. Um, revitalization kind of a work. Uh, we were sitting down and these two true old timers uh, sat down and uh, they started chatting yeah. with us. And anytime this happens, doesn't matter, men, women, old, young, I start talking. I don't know where they're at in terms of you know, Calvinism, Reformed theology, it never matters. Uh, we have great fellowship. We have great conversations. They love the Lord. They love the church. They love the Bible. And I asked these guys, we were like, how many, how, how many of these been coming to? And they didn't answer. And I, and I said, long time. And he said, we were, well, we were here. And he started naming like seventies. I think it was 60s, 70s. Wow. They, they had been at it, man. And, uh, and they seemed so friendly and excited and eager. I love the messengers. I'm always encouraged when you go because you think like it's a members meeting or a business meeting. It's, you know, and people are, you, you see the drama on Twitter and you think like, oh, this could just be a horrible thing. And I actually went in pretty, I don't know, discouraged. I wasn't looking forward to it. Uh, but once I started milling around and talking to people and there were some moments, you know, uh, yeah, <laughs> there were there were a few there were a few microphone moments and a few things that were really that really put me off. But again, that's family. That's it's like we're gonna we're gonna have some some arguments and some fights, and so I get that. But the the SBC is 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 pretty big. Um, yeah. Do you think do you think that there are because like Tom brings up a lot of points that I agree with, right? Like when it, when it comes to regenerate church membership, as an example, he's been harping on that. And I mean that in a positive way, harping on that for decades. Uh, that's great. Like we, we, there are things that need to be fixed. I, I like the ERLC. I think we need to do some work on it. I think they were, they were way too quiet on some issues and uh, I, I'd like them to speak up more. And I think they could be a really a better resource for us, but I, I like the ERL, ERLC, but what do you think is broken or does really need a, a, a reformation of sorts in the convention at this point? So that's a great question. And I'll mention a couple of things, uh, but I'm going to bookend it. I'm going to say this twice, once at the beginning and once at okay. the end. Um, 
the the things that are working are bigger than the things that are broken. That's good. Uh, That's good. And uh, but I, I do think that there is a need to work a little harder on our system of trustee governance uh, in terms of of training yeah. and equipping for, for trustees. I've been a trustee, um, and, and I'll, I'll give you a couple of areas that I think uh, would be good for us to, to give some help for our trustees on. First of all, just some basic training about good board governance, about what their role is, uh, about helping them to understand uh, how they relate to the head of the entity. Hey, Bart, just uh, for a quick minute, could, could you explain, some of our listeners are so out of any kind of denominational framework. Could you explain what you mean? We elect trustees. What are trustees? Sure. So uh, the way the Southern Baptist Convention works, our churches are autonomous, and so are all of the different corporations that are associated with the Southern Baptist Convention, like the International Mission Board that sends missionaries overseas and the North American Mission Board that you talked about earlier that uh, plants and strengthens churches and and underserved areas in North America, in the United States and Canada, basically, uh, or the ERLC that we've mentioned who does uh, advocacy work for religious liberty and for ethics. Uh, and uh, we have six seminaries and we have uh, Guidestone that provides uh, retirement and insurance kind of services. And then Lifeway that uh, produces curriculums, public publishing house, academic books, that sort of thing. Uh, and online services. Lifeway does a lot of stuff. So all, each of these is a separate corporation, and um, they um, uh, each one of them uh, is uh, the corporate in, uh, relationship is highly technical. Uh, the, the stockholders in each of those corporations, there's only one. It's the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, but the way that they're governed is that the Southern Baptist Convention elects a number of trustees every year. And so there's a board. Uh, and like I served as a trustee at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, there are 40 trustees on the board at Southwestern Seminary. And uh, and that's the group that actually governs the entity. Southwestern Seminary uh, board meets twice a year, once in the fall, once in the spring, and sets policy uh, and hires the the president and the vice president, okay. and um, and and then they implement the policy that the board sets. Um, so you know you're voted on by the convention, sent into these meetings, and um, so the trustees and, are making and, sure that these institutions that they are assigned to um, are operating in a healthy way, or at least they're supposed to make sure that they're operating in a healthy way. Um, uh, above board and, and all of that. And you're saying that they're not getting enough training to be put into that position. So, uh, yeah, but I, I want to make clear that this trustee system, trustee system works pretty well. It just could be improved. Right. Um, and just like talking from my perspective, when I was on the board at Southwestern, I was for most of those years, the chair of a subcommittee of the board uh, that was in charge of all the academic affairs. Mm -hmm of the, of the seminary. Uh, and so if they changed the curriculum or d degree plan, we would vote on that. Uh, if they hired a new professor, we would vote on that. We did a great job of, you know, for example, vetting new professors mm. who were coming in. I, I read everything they wrote before we voted. on. Wow. I, I read their dissertation. I would scour the internet, find anything online they'd ever written. Uh, they would come in and sit for an interview with us and I would ask them questions 
you know, that were that were pointed about things that I'd read that they had written. Before. You're pulling deep cuts on them. <laughs> they had to be surprised completely because that's, that's I'm responsible to yeah. 50,000 churches mm-hmm. uh, for the way that they're doing their work. I took that very seriously. So I think that's a way that the trustee system works is that trustees are doing that everywhere. But after I got out of serving, I wound up at an event um, that um, that the Alliance Defending Freedom put on. And uh, they had a few pastors at that. Most ADF events are mostly populated by lawyers. This is a group that goes to the Supreme Court and, and argues in favor of religious liberty. But, you know, they'll bring a few pastors in to some of these events just to teach us some things. And they had an entire session on how a board ought to run and like 10 questions every board member should ask at, at every board meeting. And not out loud every time, but that you should answer from the documentation they give you. And I was like, wow, where was this when I was on a board? And so uh, right now we do pretty good board orientation. The, the entity that you're governing provides you with the orientation. Hmm. I think we ought to have, we still need that. They're, they're, the entity sure. needs to provide orientation. But I think we ought to have some independent training for all of our trustees prior to and along the way. I, the best idea for me, and I should make clear, the president of the convention has no authority to make it happen uh, other than to suggest it's a good idea. But I wish with our annual meeting every year, we would have a, a meeting for everybody who's a trustee of anything That's and good. just do a little do a little continuing education about best practices to clarify some people go into a trusteeship and they think here's this entity head who is a, a celebrity, a hero in my mind. And, um, and, and I'm here to help carry his agenda forward. That's an unhealthy relationship right. for trustee to be in. Others come in and think I was sent here to get this guy and that's not healthy either. Uh, and so I think, in some cases, helping trustees to have a healthy idea about their relationship with the administration or the head of the entity, uh, you know, can, could be a good investment. But I think maybe far and away, the most important would be to provide some independent training to trustees about their relationship with member churches of the SBC and just rank and file Southern Baptists. Uh, that's, a, that's a difficult needle to thread. But I've talked to some Southern Baptists who would say, and I believe them, uh, I had concerns about something the ERLC did or didn't do. I had concerns about something Southwestern did or didn't do. I called or I wrote, and I talked to a guy just last week. He said for a year I left. I, I would I would every couple of weeks send an email or a voicemail or something, and nobody ever talked to me. Wow. No, nobody ever replied to that at all. And so, you know, now we're, we're, I think we're going to leave the Southern Baptist Convention. And, um, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that that church won't do that because I replied to them in 24 hours, yeah. uh, having found out about what was going on with them. And I'm really trying to, to stay connected with folks who are part of the SBC. And, and, you know, when, uh, when I was on the board at Southwestern, um, I, I was told if somebody tries to contact you, refer them to the president's office. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, th- I think 
So I, I don't think that's what Southern Baptists have in mind generally is their right. relationship with their trustees. The difficulty of it is somebody serves, they get 50 phone calls. Everybody knows exactly what you ought to do and they all disagree with each other. Uh, you know, it's kind of like COVID and being a pastor. Everybody knew exactly what the right thing was to do about masks or yeah. about uh, the vaccine or whatever. They were all completely convinced that they were right. They just all were saying different things. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, it's a tough place when you're leading a church. It's a tough place when you're leading an institution. And so I can see why you might say, let's protect our trustees and keep them from having to have this, these difficult conversations mm-hmm. with people. But, but it will not keep our family of churches healthy right. for people to feel like they're being ignored. And so, uh, well, they're sort so of I like think, they're sort of like elders, right, of a church in a sense. And it's like if I if the, if we were getting emails and not responding them, responding to them, our people would be appropriately upset. I mean, if expressing concerns or even if they're silly, even if we disagree, you still got to respond to them. So yeah. I, I totally agree that I hadn't thought about that end of it because I guess because I've never appealed to the trustees before. But yeah, we would want them to be ready to communicate with uh, with member churches. Absolutely. But you see the other side of it, too. These are volunteers. They're getting paid nothing to do this. And, um, you know, sometimes they'll they'll get questions or complaints about things that are a really deep dive into the operations of of a big entity. And um, and and it's hard for them to know exactly how to answer or even to know whether it's appropriate. Uh, There's a um, uh, if if. If Southwestern Seminary has a labor dispute with, uh, you know, uh, with somebody who shelves books at Roberts Library, um, it's it's an unhealthy climate if trustees are jumping in on every, you know, internal employment dispute. Um, That's it's just even if the trustees are right, administration is wrong. Uh, an institution can't run that way where every decision is micromanaged by people who are only on the campus twice a year. Right. Uh, and we don't have trustees to do that. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it is a difficult issue. And I'm not saying that the right place uh, is for a person who's who's a pastor trying to manage his church. And he got 20 phone calls this week from from people wanting to know about his voluntary board service uh, to have to. Uh, to have to provide a complete answer to all of those people. Um, but th- there ought to be something better than I'm just going to ignore that, right. uh, um, that, that we can, that we can arrive at. And, you know, then uh, I think um, the, the, as far as other things that are unhealthy, obviously we've, we've got some things that were revealed in this sex abuse task force um, that, that have been, um, that have been, sort of profoundly unhealthy in that um, I think if I were going to nail down the number, number one thing that's there um, not knowing how to be a good client for a lawyer, Mm. Uh, you know, uh, a lawyer's job is to tell you is to answer the question, is this illegal? What you're thinking about doing. And, uh, and then also is this risky? what you're thinking about doing. Sure. And a good lawyer will give you the answer to both of those questions. Neither of those answers tells you what to do. Right. Um, They're not dealing in morality. Right. Right. And so 
we count on the people who are in positions of responsibility in our convention to seek that advice and listen to it, but not to abdicate decision-making mm-hmm. to the answers to those questions. Because in the end, the thing that is illegal and the most risky may be the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. I will. You know, it, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I mean, I was all for waiving attorney client privilege, but I'm also a big believer in radical transparency. I want I radical too. people know what I make. They don't just know what staff makes at our church. They know what I make. They know what my insurance costs. I know you're the same that's way. How we are. That's like, yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's because it's, it's, it's God's money, but it's their money. Right. It's, it's, right. it, it's, we want them to know. And our church votes on the, on the budget. And so I want them, we want them to know what's going on. They can speak, they can change it. We're really congregational in that way. Yeah. So that's too. I've told my church before, uh, I want you to pay me the least amount of money that, uh, that, that our congregation feels comfortable with as stewardship of uh, yeah. what we're doing. I don't want you to pay me so much that a large number of people in our congregation are thinking, are we really doing with God's money what we ought to do? See, what I tell our uh, people is the more you pay me, the more God loves you. And that uh, if you pay, the more you pay me, the more he will bless you. It's the kind of thing that I do. That's why I make 500 grand a year. Um, so resolution two about the prosperity gospel. We'll <laughs> oh, talk shoot. About that next. Yeah, I, mean, that, I should have thought about that. Um, hey, what did you, okay, I'm going to ask you a two-part question. And you don't have to answer the first part if you don't want to. But the first part is, what did you think of Rick Warren's uh, little spiel, speech that he gave? And connected to that, is the SBC, we talk about it being a big tent. I like it being a big tent. Um, is the SBC tent big enough to allow female pastors? Uh, let me answer the second question first. Okay. And then I will give you an answer to the first question. Uh, I think that the Southern Baptist Convention has to come to a point of clarity that we are not a convention that has churches with female pastors in it. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I understand why, uh, the credentials committee was in a tough spot. Um, uh, why were so they in a tough so, spot? Cause a lot of us don't understand. Maybe sure. you could explain why they were in a tough spot. Their job is not to apply their own opinions about something. Their job is right. to take the Baptist faith and message and apply it to somebody's situation. Agreed. Uh, the Baptist faith and message does say that the office of pastors, limited men is qualified by scripture but you have all of this well-documented uh, evidence that when the convention adopted that sentence, the members of the committee had gone all over assuring people this is only talking about the senior pastor of the church. Oh. And, and so— I was you know, there I for that. I was there, I was there for that, but I don't—for some reason, uh, that just didn't— that's not ringing a bell for me. Yeah. So well, why were they making that either. point? Why were they making that point that it's only sure. for senior pastor? Well, I'll tell you why. But uh, two reasons. Uh, I'll give you a theological and a practical reason. The practical reason: there were more Southern Baptist churches then that had women with the title pastor uh, serving somewhere down the staff uh, than there are today. Wow. Uh, so that's why. That's why this is not drift. It's not drift because actually you could pass that motion. I think you could pass that motion at the SBC today with a wide margin saying everybody with the title pastor, everybody in a pastoral office in the church should be male. I think you could carry that by a long way today in the messenger body. I agree. Um, And in 2000, you could not. 
22 wow. years ago because there were there were a lot of people who had somebody uh, down their staff. I, but because, um, uh, hey, and don't let me lose sight of the theological reason. Right. I'm going to I, I got you. Uh, I don't want to forget and wander away from that. But, uh, but just practically speaking, um, this is the danger when you bring somebody with a PhD in Baptist history onto your podcast. Is, oh, I love it's it. Stuffy, Story time with Brother Bart. No, so, we love it. Um, we landmarkism was the was the major controversy in the Southern Baptist Convention in the late eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. Uh, we had a split that took place in that time frame between us and what became. Uh, you have the American Baptist Association, Baptist Missionary Association. Those those groups of Baptists uh, in the um, in the convention. Um, uh, we wound up splitting during that time of, of controversy over landmarkism. Uh, in the in the period after that, sick of arguing about these things, uh, Southern Baptists replaced talking all the time about landmark ecclesiology with kind of we don't talk about Bruno. You know, mm-hmm. it was uh, it we stopped talking about ecclesiology much at all. Yeah. And uh, that's the way things were when I went through seminary hmm. uh, is that is it was a really attenuated conversation about ecclesiology. And um, and I remember people people talking at that time about how, well, you know, we have we have women on staff who are working with children. We have women on staff who are working with uh, students in some pla- uh, places. We have women on staff who are working with women. Um, they're doing the same work as this man over here who's doing something else. But uh, because, because he's ordained and called a pastor, his tax, tax situation is different mm. from this other person over here who gets a smaller, she gets a smaller salary and her taxes are worse uh, because she doesn't have that. So, and, and a lot of these people had been through an educational process that had barely talked about the idea that they're biblical offices with biblical qualifications and, uh, and here's the difference between a pastor and somebody else who serves. And so they just started saying, as a matter of, of fairness, uh, let's ordain that person and put them in a position to have the same benefits in their taxation. Uh, because Baptists have been generally unified on not enjoying paying taxes. Uh, we're good, good Americans in that way. And so you have people doing that sort of thing. But then along came... Uh, movements like nine marks that started uh, encouraging people and they're not the only ones, but, right. uh, but, but, but like that really encouraging people to think about biblical ecclesiology and, and about the office of pastor, elder, overseer. And, um, and so I think when you get to the year 2000, that's really just kind of starting. And, um, so here's the theological reason. Okay. Uh, if you look at some of the folks who were on that committee, Paige Patterson is one of them. And there's a, there's a neat little book, Four Views on, um, on uh, actually it's not the four, is it the Four Views on Ecclesiology or is it the Who Runs the Church? It may be Who Runs the Church. Anyway, Paige Patterson, Sam Waldron are both in there writing chapters in that. And, uh, and Patterson's advocating for a point of view that he called primary elder, congregationalism versus Waldron's plural elder congregationalism. And, um, you know, Patterson's point coming out of like the, the seven stars to the seven churches in the church of Asia and whatever, 
his point was to say that uh, that really there's a biblical idea of a senior pastor who's different from all the others. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think a legitimately held point of view by him and, and some folks who were influential on the drafting of the Baptist Faith and Message and by a lot of people in the congregation at the time who you just didn't see nearly as much in the terms of plurality of elders and that sort of an approach to church governance uh, and and the idea that these are all pastors, elders, overseers. So uh, I think uh, that caused people to to come back and offer that that clarity at that time to say, when we say pastor, we're talking about the senior pastor. And I think our ecclesiology has moved since then. Mm-hmm. I think we have, I think we, I think we actually have uh, a healthier view of what a pastor is now and how many of them there can be in a church. Right. And um, I think we have, uh, uh, you know, I think we also have a healthier view about gender roles in that, because like I said, I think there are actually probably fewer people in that kind of a position uh, named and recognized as a pastor in the Southern Baptist Convention today than there were in 2000, where they were afraid they couldn't pass this revision of the Baptist faith and message if they didn't make that clarification. Mm. So, um, so I, I think I think that that a that a denomination, a family of churches, what holds us together organically, part of it is that we swap members and pastors back and forth between these churches as people move to other parts of the country or whatever. And that that's kind of cohesive. I know uh, you know there there are a lot of people uh, when I run into Jimmy Draper, for example. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're like three families who live in Farmersville now who are part of my church who used to live down in the Metroplex and were a part of his church. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people who are in the Southern Baptist Convention I run into and we talk about church members we know in common. And I think if you get to a point where you have so much broadness in your idea of who's qualified to be a pastor and who's not, um, you get to a point where the churches can't swap pastors. They have radically different ideas about who a pastor is. And so, hey, I, I think Al Mohler is right. I think the biblical case for males only in the, in the office of pastor is strong enough that if you, can, if you can wriggle out of that, you can wriggle out of anything that the Bible says. And so I think Dr. Mohler is right to say that this is a bellwether in some ways. And uh, But I also think that the fellowship of the Southern Baptist Convention will struggle to endure with churches that have such radically different views of who would be qualified uh, to be a pastor. And so for all those reasons, I think that ultimately we've got to settle this question. I, I can say that and say that I hope we'll settle this question by persuasion more than exclusion. And I think there's reason to be hopeful for that because I've already said, I think we've really made great gains mm. since 2000 about this in, uh, in the view of Southern Baptists uh, about, uh, about what the office of pastor is. And, uh, you know, I, I believe um, the vehicle for that is not going to be passing a resolution uh, or anything like that. I think it's likely, you heard me say it here, uh, I think it's likely that in the next five or six years, uh, at some point, we're going to have to raise the hood on the Baptist faith and message and get the wrenches out and um, kind of get and see. We've done that typically every 30, 35 years or so. Uh, it's only been 20. 
but it's been 20 pretty dramatic years. And I don't think this is the only thing that we need to look at the Baptist faith and message about. I think the, uh, uh, you know, we addressed homosexuality in some really important ways. Uh, there, there are things in the Baptist faith and message that touch upon uh, the transgender things that are happening around us, but that's really marched forward a, quite a long way. We could probably strengthen some language uh, in the Baptist faith and message in some of those areas too. And um, so, uh, and we also need no. to figure out how to how the churches relate to the Baptist faith and message, right? Because Adam Greenway is completely right about yeah, that. that I, Absolutely, I, like we we need to figure that because I know what I I know what I want. I want to you got to you, you got to affirm it. <laughs> if you can't affirm it, I, then I mean I would like to see it happen. In, it's in a, in a different way. I'd like it. you got to affirm it. If you can't, then you got to appeal to your state. And then here's my exception. And then they've got to say yes or no on it. I, I mean, I just, I don't understand why we can't have a clearer uh, sort of I don't know if you know this, but our state convention, Southern Baptist Texas convention, it's exactly that way. To be a member of our state convention, your church has to affirm. That, that doesn't have to be your church's statement of right. faith. You can have right. a different statement of faith for your church, but you have to affirm the Baptist faith yeah. message. Uh, to be able to be a part of it. Now, I promised you that I would answer about what Rick had right. to say, uh, and I'll I'll tell you that um, um, you know I that that I have respect for Rick Warren's coming and yep. and and speaking addressing this issue. Um, I don't think he helped himself really uh, with what he had to say. Why is that? Um, I, I just I think that. Um, I think that the memes that you see on the internet reflect why it came uh, off. It came off as bragging. I, I think it really had that effect. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but I do think that he had the right to speak. I saw a lot of people complain that he had gotten the time to speak. Uh, you may have seen, I, I played some small role in that inadvertently um, that I talked about. Did you see where I tweeted about that? Um, I don't remember. Okay. Well, I was sitting there getting ready to go up for the resolutions committee report the, the first time. And uh, the, the credentials committee was reporting right before us. All this was going on. Uh, a member of the committee on order business came up to me and said, Hey, if Rick Warren wanted to speak to this, would it be in order for him to do that? And how would he go about it? And I said, Oh, is Rick here? And he said, he's five feet behind you uh, back here. <laughs> And um, I'd never met him. I wound up uh, meeting him. He hugged me. Uh, and um, uh, so anyway, um, I, I said before, before the hug, uh, I, I told the guy on the Committee on Order of Business, you know, thinking about Article 13 of Robert's Rules of Order, um, you know, if somebody's on trial, if you're discussing somebody's expulsion from the group, uh, they have a point of personal privilege. They have, they have the right to address the group over what the allegations are that are made against them. And, um, and so I said, I'm not the parliamentarian. I'm telling you, I think he does have a right to speak to the messengers. And I think what you should do is go talk to the parliamentarian about that yep. and see if he has that right. And if so, find out where he needs to be when for him to be able to, uh, to speak in that way. And so, you know, I thought he had the right to speak, um, I took everything he said as genuine. I, I think, um, you know, for him to say uh, there's no other denomination of churches in which we could have flourished the way that we did other than the Southern Baptist Convention. I was moved by that. I thought that mm -hmm. was I thought that was a really uh, kind and, and warm hearted thing to say. Um, 
But, you know, I think uh, going to seminary when he did and in the environment he's been in in California, uh, I, I do think that that not just in this area, but in some other areas, uh, Rick has taken more of an experimental approach to Ecclesiology to yeah. trying to figure out how to how to how to structure his church. Uh, you can see that even in the point he makes, which he's right that a lot of people haven't bothered to ask this. And he says, hey, listen, we're governed by elders and they're all men. Mm-hmm. And we're committed to that. We just see pastors and elders as different, um, which really just changes which sentence in the Baptist faith and message he disagrees with. Right. Uh, because the Baptist faith and message says that the officers of the church are, are deacons. And it says now pastors, it used to say elders or yep. uh, overseers. So, um, so, you know, it's, a, um, it's, it's the kind of thing that you can look and you can say, um, we love Saddleback. We love Rick Warren. Uh, we're, we're thankful for the fact that we've been in partnership with you for a long time, trying to reach an area that's not an easy reach for Southern Baptists. And, um, yet we can also say that as a convention, we are, uh, we're growing in our understanding of ecclesiology and the office of pastor and, uh, and, and growing in ways that we think are healthy that seem to be on a different trajectory from you. What are we going to do about that? Uh, will you, Will you hear us out? Maybe. Maybe we've got a good biblical case that would be something that would make your church even healthier. Uh, and um, and so I'd like to I'd like to engage in that uh, and not just have our. Um, uh, well, I'm so long winded. Uh, ben Cole says I filibuster myself. But will you entertain one more hokey movie reference uh, at this point to uh, talk about this? I'm all about movies. Go for it. Okay, so uh, this uh, and actually this is not a movie. It's a it's a TV miniseries. I don't know if you ever watched From the Earth to the Moon. That was uh, Tom Hanks. It came after Apollo thirteen. Right, Tom Hanks series about the entire Apollo program, mm-hmm. and um, and so this one was actually about Apollo twelve. Uh, talked about Al Bean and and uh, Pete Gordon and um, that that launch immediately after Apollo eleven. Uh, they launched during a thunderstorm, and the launch vehicle was struck by lightning twice on the way into orbit, and um, and it knocked out the entire computer platform uh, when they were on the way up, and uh, and ground control lost all their data. Nobody knew if it was where it was supposed to be. Uh, you know, going at that speed, things can go wrong in a hurry. And there was a guy named John Aaron who was working at Mission Control that day who uh, came up with this. He said, have them set SCE, signal conditioning equipment, have them set SCE to aux. And it was a switch that nobody had thought of in a long time. And and only one guy in the command module even knew what that was Wow! with all their training. And it was Alan Bean. He said, I know where that is. And he went over and he, and he did that switch and it fixed everything. And Alan Bean said, people called me the hero. But he said the real hero was Pete Conrad, the commander of the mission, because he had his hand on the abort button all the way through. And in the midst of all of that, did not activate Mm. it and gave us the opportunity to uh, to solve this problem before taking the most radical step. And, you know, I think sometimes we have to be careful about pushing the abort button or pushing the eject button uh, uh, way too early on things. 
where there's still an opportunity to talk to people and persuade. Mm. And particularly when the momentum's in our direction, like I think it is on this question of pastors and ecclesiology and, and gender roles, complementarianism. That's good. And let me just ask one last question and you can be, you can be as brief as you want as I know our time is up. Um, there are people like, you know, I, uh, I became a Southern Baptist uh, in 94, right? I became a Christian as a young adult, uh, became a Southern Baptist a couple years after my conversion. And so I've been SBC since. Um, and I've had to talk people in my generation, Gen X, out of leaving a lot, especially in the aughts. I'm like, don't leave, don't bail, just it's going to get better. Things are going to get better. We just got to work at it. But I see it happening a lot. Again, a lot of people are threatening to leave, sort of like when liberal Hollywood says, if this person gets elected president, I'm going to go to Canada. They never do, but, uh, but they always threaten it. But I think some of these people are. And, um, and honestly, our church... I mean, if this whole convention would have gone sideways, a number of our people would have wanted to leave. We might not have lasted in the SBC. So um, to those that are looking to leave, or at least to those that are tempted to leave, to, to those that are struggling with staying, what would, how would you encourage them to stay longer, give it more time? What would you say to them? Uh, well, it depends on the reasons. I mean, if you're thinking about leaving because... Um, you're not sure about immersion baptism or uh, if you're thinking about leaving because, um, you know, you think that the convention is way too fundamentalist with its commitment to inerrancy and sufficiency of scripture, you may have a better home somewhere. Right. Absolutely. Uh, Really. And I think we have to, we have to be honest about that. Our prime objective is not to keep everybody, but for folks who fit within the Baptist faith and message uh, for folks who fit within this idea of cooperative missiology, I'll just say this. Uh, don't lose sight of every good thing that's happening because of the bad things that you notice that may actually be valid. Maybe there, there, there are probably a hundred missionaries on the mission field who, uh, who think just like your church. Mm-hmm. Okay. Who are being supported through what you're doing through the cooperative program. And I think you have to ask yourself this question. If we bailed out, would we be able to get into a network quickly where a hundred missionaries that mm. think exactly like our church could be supported by our church as efficiently uh, as, as, as a part of a, a plan that's as carefully constructed to allocate them across the world, to share the gospel in places of greatest need. Um, would, uh, would we be able, you're, you're in a network of churches where there are six seminaries, and uh, they may have a professor that you disagree with. They may have a professor that you disagree with sharply. Uh, they may to talk about one issue that we talked about earlier. There are going to be professors that are very, very much not Calvinistic in what they're teaching in theology class. There are going to be professors who are very, very much Calvinistic in what they're teaching in their theology class. And you could choose right. either side of that that you're on to find the guy you disagree with and be really bothered by that. But look at how many you have who do agree with you, who are in some of the leading theological education institutions in the world, and ask yourself, if we left, what would it take for us to get into something different that accomplished what's being accomplished here that that was closer that, that that actually had more people teaching who were aligned with what we think i think i think if you are if you're a 1689 church you're probably supporting more calvinistic theology professors touching on more students 
through the SBC than you would be if you did something else that was only only reformed. So and certainly, and, uh, and as a church that's reformed Baptist, um, I know that that we have a, a diversity of missionaries, uh, but I know a number of them that do fall right in line with what we teach in our particulars, and they're, one of them serving in an in a place I'm not allowed to mention, uh, they've actually joined our church. So when they come home, they get to report back to us. Like, so I totally agree and affirm with what you're saying here. I know it's true. Yeah. So I just think that God has blessed this family of churches. And uh, the one thing he hasn't blessed us with is absolute unanimity of thought. Uh, and in a world with Twitter and in a denomination mm. with an open microphone every year, uh, it's easy to think that the noisy parts are the parts that are most significant, but they are not. They are not. And um, and and I'm happy to talk with people and help them to see good reasons to stay if they if they fit within this family of churches. Well, Bart, um, I, Doctor Barber, I am. Uh, I, Nobody I, calls uh, me that, but that's fine. Man, I I'm I'm so grateful for you for um you you're you're very accessible. And uh, to, to people online, Twitter and whatnot, but even as president, I, I've seen you diligently responding to people. And I know you've been making time. It means a lot that you spent an hour with us talking about these things. And I can tell you, I'm personally encouraged by it. And I know our listeners are going to be as well. Thank you for making the time. So much fun, Joe. Thank you so much. Uh, probably all the much more fun since it was just you instead of Jimmy. But, uh, oh, I don't know. Jimmy was not happy. Jimmy was so not happy that this was happening when he left again. Maybe stop leaving, Jimmy. Yeah. Maybe stop leaving. But for, uh, for, for those of you that, uh, that are regular listeners, thanks for listening. And for those of you that subscribe to the All Access Premium content, thank you for that. We really appreciate it. If you're new here, Doctrine and Devotion is a podcast that drops every Monday and Thursday. So subscribe through your favorite podcatcher. You can find us at DoctrineAndDevotion.com or on social media at Doc and Devo. Devo, that's uh, Twitter and Instagram. If you want to interact with us or uh, if you want to yell at Bart because uh, he can't find limited atonement in the Bible when it's all over the place, that's fine. You can at him at Bart Barber or you can just tag us in that as well so we can have some fun. Uh, Thanks for listening, guys, and we hope you'll be back for more. Mm